0: Welcome to a special edition of Words Matter, The Contenders. Welcome to The Contenders. I'm Joe Lockhart. Given the intense interest in the Democratic nomination process, we thought it'd be interesting to talk to those men and women who've taken the ultimate political leap of faith and run for president of the United States. Our guest today was the 65th governor of Massachusetts from 1975 to 1979, and then the 67th governor from 1983 to 1991. We'll get to that, making him the longest-serving chief executive in Massachusetts history. Before that, he was a member of the Massachusetts House of Representatives from 1963 to 1971. In 1988, he ran for and won the Democratic nomination for president, Facing the Vice President George H. W. Bush in the general election, Governor Michael Dukakis, welcome to the contenders. Joe, well,
1: thank you. Good to be here.
0: Now, in the interest of full disclosure for our listeners, I worked for you. I had the honor and the privilege to work for you in your campaign, so uh, I'm a little bit of a homer. But there
1: you go. Thank you. And, you're, and we're here in Boston. So yes, we, we're here in Boston on here a beautiful we are, day. A beautiful day. Yeah.
0: So. Just some background. You're a first-generation American. Both of your parents were born in Greece.
1: Yeah. Actually, my dad was born in a predominantly Greek town in western Turkey. Ah. And his parents were from the island of Lesbos. When he was 15, he decided to come to the United States over the violent objection of his father.
0: (laughs) Well, things things turned out pretty well. Indeed, they did. You're from Brookline, Massachusetts. Uh, As we were talking, you've moved a lot over the last, what, five, six decades. You moved from one house to another. That was it. About ten yards. And married a girl from Brooklyn, And married a girl from Brookline. Uh, you attended Swarthmore College and were accepted at Harvard Law School, but decided to defer that enrollment for two years and
1: enlist in the Army. I was drafted, but I kind of asked to be drafted. Yes. So that's kind of a semi-enlistment, I guess. Yeah. So tell me when
0: in your youth you decided that public
1: service might be the thing for you. I guess we all have a story. I was this kid son of greek immigrants who themselves were great success stories which is one of the reasons i feel so strongly about immigration itself and i had a third grade teacher named mary ripley at the baker school in brookline massachusetts who decided to have elections of class offices this isn't the third grade but remember it was 1942 we were world war ii was upon us and every kid i don't care who you were knew that we were in the middle of something big I have no idea why I ran for the presidency of my third grade class. I have no idea why my classmates voted for me. But I was elected president of the third grade class.
0: Well, What was your platform? Something to do
1: with I don't think I had lunch? a platform. I don't know what it was. I was a pretty good athlete, so maybe it had something to do with a playground or something. I don't know. And uh, years later, I found out that Mrs. Ripley was still teaching up in Groton, small town next to New Hampshire line. And I picked up the phone. I was governor at the time. I called her and I said, how would you like to come down and bring your students with you and introduce them to the guy that you got started in politics. And it was really a very emotional meeting, I got to tell you. And I met her son years later who said to me, you know, my mother followed every single thing you did when you're in politics. And about when I was nine or 10, actually I remember the 1940 presidential campaign with Roosevelt and Wilkie. It was the first presidential campaign I remember. But don't ask me why this happened, but I don't have to tell you what America was like back in the 40s. Sorry, (laughs) it wasn't great. It had great qualities in certain respects, but it was racist, it was anti-Semitic, and that was true in Boston as well as other places, you know, liberal Massachusetts. Anti-Semitism, which was, and I was in a town which had a large Jewish population, but also a large Irish Catholic population. No interreligious dating in high school. Period. Just didn't happen. And there was something about this, Joe, that just bothered the hell out of me. And um, from the time I was nine or 10, you know, evidence of injustice, of racial prejudice, of religious prejudice just bothered me. Well, I was involved in student politics, president of student council, and all that kind of stuff. And then I went to a Quaker school called Swarthmore, just outside of Philadelphia. I'd never been out of New England. In those days you didn't jump around a plane and go places. And suddenly I find myself nine miles southwest of Philadelphia, where the barbershops in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania won't, won't cut the hair of black kids wasn't. Swarthmore. <laughs> what is this all about? This isn't Birmingham, right? This is Philly. And I and my fellow students decided to boycott the barbershops. And I figured great economic opportunity, as well as striking a blow for <laughs> civil rights, I became the campus barber. And I made my walking around money, cutting hair on the third floor of Wharton Hall. It was really kind of interesting. I got quite active politically at that time, both back here in the Boston area and Swarthmore. Graduated in fifty five, was drafted six weeks later. And about three days after I got to Fort Dix, I had what in those days passed for a personnel interview, or another draftee who was a personnel specialist kind of decided what you were going to do for the next two years. Except this guy had a file on me, and this was in pre-computer America, a big, thick manila file with every single political activity I'd ever engaged in at Swarthmore College. I mean, who am I? This Greek kid from Boston. I'm a threat to But that was those were the McCarthy years. And uh, the interview went something like this. So I see you ran a fundraising drive to the American Civil Liberties Union while you were at Swarthmore. I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I did. And you were the chairman of Students for Democratic Action, which was the student wing of the ADA, you know, the Liberal Democratic Organization. By the way, I was succeeded by a guy named Carl Levin, at Swarthmore, who ended up, you know, three-term yep. United States Senator from Michigan and, and chairman of the Armed Services Committee. And the guy, it's all there. Well, fortunately, he didn't recommend me for another than honorable discharge, which they were doing to some people who had been part of organizations they didn't like, and I ended up in Korea, which is fine. Where do you think they got that information? Ten years later we discovered that the FBI had a tap on the Swarthmore switchboard. And in those days, you couldn't call out. You didn't have individual phones. And they must have been paying somebody <laughs> to take notes on conversations of guys like me. So, um, so, so, it's, so,
0: so g- guys like you <laughs> um, who uh, are politically active... You, so you served in the legislature for about eight years. Yes, and then I did. You, you yeah. ran for governor and you yeah. won.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, then you ran again and I you, got beat and and you lost. And, and then
1: I came back and beat the guy that beat me.
0: Yeah. Someone else who I worked for, Bill Clinton, had a similar experience, he did. which is he ran as a as a young person, <laughs> right? Became governor and then lost the first time he faced the voters again. What yeah. did you learn from we, losing?
1: We, we were we were the comeback kids. Those yeah. Us, right. So you were the
0: comeback kid first,
1: <laughs> I guess. Yeah. And he only had a two year term. Those That's right. Days. That's remember? right. Yep. What did I learn? A lot. You know, I was a pretty good talker. I wasn't a very good listener. And uh, the Massachusetts that I walked into in the legislature in, in 75, frankly, was one of the three or four most corrupt states in the country. So I was, you know, one of the leaders of the Young Turks. It used to drive my father crazy, you know, reading about his Greek... American son being a young Turk, Turk. I said, Dad, it's just a its a figure of speech. Don't just worry a phrase. About it. Just worry about it. And uh, it was, was kind of hammered tongues trying to transform this state government into something that we could be proud of. But not a great listener. And although I thought we had done a pretty good job, I mean, we took a 12% unemployment rate and dropped it to 5% in four years. I ran against a guy in the Democratic primary who, I don't want to be too tough on him, but was not unlike Trump in some respects in terms of what he was saying. Appealed to working folks and so forth, even though he was a very conservative guy, and subsequently became a Republican. And uh, here I am, 40 points ahead in the polls with five weeks to go, and he beats me. Well, needless to say, (laughs) that was a a pretty shaking up experience. Um, Frankly, I thought I was done after that. But he had some problems himself as governor, and we went back at it in the great rematch, and and I beat him. And frankly, I was a much better governor the second time around because I was listening. I was a much better consensus builder. And I think it's fair to say we had a pretty successful eight years, and particularly a state that was a basket case economically when I first took over subsequently became really quite strong. But um, lots of lessons learned, I can tell you. So in your second go-round as (laughs) governor, I I think there was
0: a general consensus that you were, if not the most successful, one of the most successful chief executives in a state, the Massachusetts miracle, all of that that stuff. stuff, But tell me when it crossed your mind that, well, maybe I should be president. And secondly, what made you think that you were qualified (laughs) to have the most complicated job in the world?
1: Both very good questions. First, I had never given it a second thought until the Iran-Contra scandal, when we started learning about uh, documents being shredded in the basement of the White House, the president and the vice president at the time violating the law. Congress had acted pretty specifically to stop this intervention in Nicaragua, and uh, the president and vice president apparently weren't bothered by this and went ahead and continued to do this stuff. But I was focused on winning a third term. I had a bunch of stuff I really wanted to do. I'd kind of privately decided three terms. Loved the job. I mean, there's nothing like being governor of Massachusetts, let me tell you. But, you know, after three terms, I don't care how good you are, people start getting a little tired of you. And in any event, I did want to complete some some serious stuff and gave it no thought. Occasionally, people would say, you know, you really ought to think about that. I'd say, look, I'm running for reelection. I don't want to hear about that stuff. After re-election, I'll, I'll think about it, but not not very hard. And this running conference scandal thing got worse and worse and worse. So I took some time off just to kind of savor the victory because uh, my third term, my third run was a good one, and, and I won by a lot. And then I said to these folks who were saying to me, well, you at least ought to look at it. I said, okay, um, I, I want to enjoy this victory. After the first of the year, uh, I'll take some time as I go into my third term. But what I want to do is sit down with a lot of people whose judgment I value and simply ask them, is this something you think I ought to do? And if I were elected, you think I could do it? And a lot of them said to me, you know, we've talked to lots of prospective presidential candidates, but none of them said (laughs) asked us whether or not, I said, well, it's the biggest... Most important political job in the world, and I think I've become a pretty good governor. But I don't know whether I can do this. What do you think? And I spent several weeks you know, talking to people who, whose judgment I valued, and who uh, I didn't think would tell me what they thought I wanted to hear, because, in point of fact, I had—I I was really very skeptical that I could do this, that I wanted to do it, and I had a family that i cherish and have a family that i cherished and i wanted to make sure that if i was going to embark on this it happens to include a a great son and two very attractive daughters and basically you know i wanted to say to my girls in particular you'll be tailed by a secret service guy i mean if your father ever wins this thing your lives are going to be different are you really comfortable about it interestingly enough the kids were far more enthusiastic about it than i was I remember my older daughter, Andrea, who's now with California Public Radio and Mm -hmm. has been for years, saying to me, Dad, you know, very few people have this opportunity, and uh, you may have it, and you ought to think about it very seriously. But if just one of them had said, please don't do it, that would have been it for me. Fortunately, our youngest had just started in college and was out of high school. If any one of the three had still been in high school, I wouldn't have done it. I mean, I, I was that concerned about them and, and what this would would do. But as I say, they were more enthusiastic than I was about it. And uh, when they all finally said, you ought to do it, that made a difference.
0: Was there a moment where you sat down with them and said, I'm going to do this, we're going for it?
1: Yeah, but there was a kind of continuing discussion of this uh, over the course of that two or three months. And finally, in, when was it? Sometime in, in March, and I finally said, okay, we're going. Having also saying, look, I think I got about a one percent chance of doing this. It's a long race, uh, so don't be surprised if um, your father doesn't win this thing. And all of them got deeply involved in the campaign. And I've often said, Kitty should have run; she'd have wanted to walk. <laughs> <laughs> but I take it
0: that the girls and John had a much uh, higher probability of you winning than you did yourself.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm not sure they. Thought this was going to be you know, it was going to be a high probability. They just said to their father, "This is something you ought to do," and and I got lots of very good feedback from a lot of people, and on the whole, it was positive. Recognizing the fact that you're starting, we had a field of what eight at the, at the beginning, not twenty-three, but eight, and I think I was at about one percent of the polls if I was even showing at the time. So that's where it all began.
0: Briefly, what was your pitch? What did you want to tell American voters that this governor from Massachusetts with kind of a funny Greek name should be president of the United States?
1: Heavily economic, because the country was struggling badly. we were in another terrible national recession in the mid-70s, um, and uh, a lot of states, my own included, were in deep trouble. I mean, they were calling us the new Appalachia up here in New England, and it was grim, these old mill cities in terrible shape, unemployment rates in the 20s, it was very, very tough. And and there were other parts of the country, not surprisingly, the Rust Belt so-called and the Midwest and so forth, also struggling for the same reasons. So my message was largely economic. We've been able to do this in my state. I think we can do it nationally, but it's got to be part of national policy. Uh, you need a federal government that, that is willing to work with depressed states. If Jack Kennedy could do it in Appalachia in the 60s, then why can't we do it now and that kind of thing? And I think on the whole, it was it was a pretty appealing uh, pitch at the time.
0: So you were an experienced politician. You'd run since the early Forever. 60s. Uh, you'd been elected many, many <laughs> right. times. Right. Talk about how different it is to first leave your legislative district, go to the state of Massachusetts, but then start traveling around to the rest of the country, Iowa, New Hampshire, California. How was that different, and where did your political instincts kick in to to help you connect with all these different people?
1: Well, first, it's it's an extraordinary experience. It's tough, no question about it, but it's an extraordinary experience because this is an extraordinary country, and discovering the country, in a sense, as you campaign, and discovering thousands of really good people who cared deeply about what was going on in the world, in the country, where we were going, was was a great experience. Like lots of candidates, we started by doing what? Organizing at the grassroots and trying to begin to qualify and all that kind of stuff. And just working away at it with a bunch of other good candidates. I mean, they called us the seven dwarfs, but frankly, present company excluded. There were some pretty good people there.
0: Oh, sure. I mean, there was there was uh, Al Gore, Bruce Babbitt, Jesse Jackson. Joe, Joe Biden. Joe Biden,
1: yeah. Right. And Gary Hart until yeah. he dropped out and then he came back, you remember, right. and all that stuff. So, as they say, present company excluded. I thought it was a pretty interesting group of folks, all of whom either were doing or, or have gone on to do some pretty impressive Absolutely. things. And it was really very interesting. So, we're all slugging away during the spring and summer. And finally, the Des Moines Register, which, as you know, is is a very good regional newspaper, finally does We did not have this instant poll. Every day, it was another poll. It was none of that stuff, fortunately. And then they do a poll in September. I'm at 16. Dick Gephardt's at 13. Jesse's at 11. Gore's at 10, and so on and so forth. You know what the headline was? I mean, this was with 60% undecided. At last, we have a front runner. (laughs) Oi! I think... 50 of got on the phone and called every journalist in the world and said, this is the most ridiculous thing. He's not the front runner 60%. <laughs> That's all you need, right? <laughs> and fortunately, we staved that off. Yeah. Then Hart jumps back in. And I remember Joe sitting in a television studio in Des Moines on a Sunday doing Meet the Press with the Washington right. group. And George Will, not unsympathetically, said, you know, this must be awfully discouraging. I mean, you guys have been working away out there. Hart, Gets out, jumps back in, and he's the front runner. He's ahead of you by 15 points, 10 points. Well, I tried to be polite about it, but you couldn't find too many (laughs) heart caucus voters at that point in Iowa. And I just said, well, you know, we're all going to be working away and so on and so forth. And as you know, when Gary ran, I think he got 2% of the vote and and dropped out. But our hope was that I could do, probably not win in Iowa, but do pretty well and uh, fortunately, thanks to an enormous amount of work in the field, I finished third, but a pretty close third, to Dick Gebhardt, and to my friend from Illinois, the United States Senator, yep. Paul. And uh, I think Gebhardt at 26, he had 24, and I had 22. So we're sitting up in this hotel in Des Moines, and my, my folks around me had very mm-hmm. long faces. They wanted to fe- finish at least second. And this then. The other thing, you, you got to go negative. I said, if I go negative, I'm dropping out. I'm not going negative. I'm not going away after my f- fellow Democrats. Sorry. That, that was established in the beginning. And by the way, uh, some people have done that this time and have destroyed their candidacies, in my opinion.
0: <laughs> in the debates, yeah.
1: In the debates, yeah. So we're sitting there. And in the meantime, 500 people are gathered in the ballroom downstairs waiting for me to come down. And I'm going to be on television being seen and heard probably by more people than have ever seen or heard me in my life. And so I'm saying to these folks, look, enough of this. I got to get downstairs in about five minutes and I got to say something. What do you want me to say? <laughs> and they have no idea, except for the husband of one of my top people who's kind of on the fringe listening. He says, well, hey, tonight you won the bronze and next week we got to go to New Hampshire and win the gold. I said, that's it? Thank That's you it. Very, Thank you Let's very much. Let's go downstairs. Let's go downstairs. <laughs> What's he going to do? What's he going to do? So I went downstairs, you know, 500 people, said, thanks for everything. I've had an incredible experience in Iowa, and I did. And subsequently beat Bush by, I don't know, 10 points in Iowa. And uh, I said, tonight, with your help, we won the bronze. Next week, we win the gold. And... Next week in New Hampshire, Kitty was putting a gold medal around my neck well you so.
0: you, you have struck a you've struck a well deserved blow to political consultants because it was just some guy standing on the corner who gave you the hey gave you the idea, maybe so anyway, so let me ask you one of the challenges I think candidates have, particularly those who have served in state office right. either as a senator or a governor,
1: yeah.
0: is to kind of blend a campaign staff among people you know and you trust and helped you get where you are and a bunch of people who say they can get you to the next level. How do you approach that? Maybe Massachusetts is less uh, than others because there's so much political talent in this state. But how did you approach that?
1: Well, first, I had a chief of staff named John Sasson who's one of the best people I've ever worked with. And he had been deeply involved in the Ferraro campaign. Right. Who was Fritz Mondale's running mate and a good person in her own right. So he had that kind of national experience, and had gotten to know a lot of people across the country, which was extremely helpful to us, without a doubt, as we began. And John had a pretty good sense of of trying to organize this thing, get going, and so on and so forth. I'm not one of these guys who who kind of does everything you tell me to do, but I, I think I take direction, especially from people who seem to know things. And, uh, and that was extremely helpful. And then I think the Massachusetts economic success story was extremely helpful. And slowly but surely people come and join and decide and so forth. Not unlike what is right now happening, we begin to kind of strike a spark and then other people come on board and so on and so forth. But this was by no means. We, we did not have first the kind of intensive polling I've mentioned this already, that we now have literally every day this numbers thing. I mean, every day we got to look at the numbers and who's ahead and who's behind and that kind of stuff. And I am a huge believer in grassroots precinct-based organization. I mean, so I got elected governor. So we weren't spending a lot of time looking at numbers. What we were looking at was, okay, how are we doing in these states? And fortunately, we had a good organization in Iowa, and then I was right next door in New Hampshire. I mean, look, if, if the guy from Massachusetts can't win in New Hampshire, or the woman in this case, or for of that matter, from Vermont, uh, you're not going to be doing much in the rest of the race. So winning in New Hampshire was a must, but I won, and I won by a lot. And both of those, both the the close third in Iowa, plus the New Hampshire thing, were very important. And then we had done a lot of work in Minnesota, a caucus state, but an important one. And I had some great people working for me in Minnesota, and we did well in Minnesota. And then I think we had a couple of weeks before we had the first Super Tuesday. And that's a whole other story, but...
0: Yeah, but looking back on the campaign, you at every turn exceeded expectations, and that's always so important. So you basically outlasted most of uh, the other candidates, and you found yourself at the end with one candidate standing opposing you, Jesse Jackson. What was that like?
1: Well, Jesse's an interesting guy, not the easiest guy in the world, but I think there was a fair amount of mutual respect there. On the other hand, he was determined that he was going to stay in the race right straight through even though effectively I'd clinched it in New York when Al Gore was still in the race. And um, that was okay because it meant that, uh, that we had to compete in every single remaining state right up to and including New Jersey and California, right. which, as you know, were the two last ones. And that was fine. seems to me it gave us a, a good reason to, to continue to organize and, and put stuff together. And was a little more relaxed, obviously, so a little more fun than this kind of intensive stuff. But I think, on the whole, we ran a darn good primary campaign, and it was quite successful, and I was determined to keep it positive, with one possible exception, when, when I started kind of emerging, and and Dick went after me on something I can't remember, we had to do some response. And maybe in a sense, Joe, not that it was easy, it's never easy, but... We were so successful in many ways that I think that had a lot to do with a decision I made, which happened to be the dumbest decision I've ever made, which was that we were not going to respond to the Bush attack campaign. yeah, and I remember, as a matter of fact, Mario Cuomo, a guy who I respected enormously. Cuomo was one of the best people I've ever worked with. And he said to me, "Forget about this attack stuff. Just ignore it. Nobody's going to pay attention to it." This was early in the campaign, four days before the end. Mario and I were campaigning in Queens together. <laughs> and he said, that's, a, that's, the worst, that's the worst advice I ever gave a candidate. But it wasn't his fault. I mean, I felt the same way. Yes. You know, Reagan was an interesting guy, but there was a lot of negative stuff there. And uh, people were pretty upset. And, and I just thought, hey, the country's ready for a positive approach. They're sick and tired of this back and forth stuff. And I think that was true. But the lesson, one of the lessons of 88 is if the other guy's going to come at you, then you better have a carefully thought out strategy for dealing with that attack campaign.
0: Let me come back to that because I think that's okay. an important part of understanding your place in, you know, the in presidential yeah. campaign history. But at the convention, this is a celebratory moment for you. Right. You have to make at the convention or just before the most impactful decision that a candidate does, which is who your vice president's going right. to be. Right. Uh, it's really the only decision you make in a campaign that matters if you win. Because anything you said in the campaign, you can revise or evolve. Tell me about
1: that process. You made a good pick, but how'd you get there? Well, we had learned some lessons from past mistakes of other candidates. And remember, I had been governor for, what, 10 years, and I had picked a lot of people. And I liked the the responsibility of picking people. Because let me tell you something. In this business, it's people that make a difference for you. By yourself, you can't be anything. You've got to put a good team together. I think on the whole, I was able to do that as governor and I thoroughly enjoyed that process. I picked 271 judges for heaven's sake and uh, I can't exaggerate just how important the quality of the people you pick is. So I was familiar with that. Uh, We basically took a look at likely candidates, uh, narrowed the field down to four, any one of whom would have been a good running mate and then began doing extensive interviews. I met with them. Uh, My campaign chairman, Paul Brandes, met with them. We put together teams of lawyers and accountants for each of the candidates who went into their finances and background and all that kind of stuff in detail with, obviously, the agreement of the candidate. We just didn't want another one of these fiascos, which we had seen from time to time. And, um... It's hard to describe this, Joe, because as I say, I'd gone through this process as governor many times. But if you do it right, somehow you come out with the right person. Not that any of the other three wouldn't have been excellent running mates. And I remember my campaign chairman at the time, Paul Brandis, was down in Washington for two or three days, kind of doing last-minute interviews and so forth, and uh, walked into my house at 10 o'clock at night, and we were planning to make a decision within the next day or two. And I said, it's Benson, right? He said, it's Benson. You know, (laughs) I'd like to think Lloyd Benson was a a darn good pick. He was an excellent running mate. If I'd done a better job myself, he could have actually made the difference, I think. And, um, but it was the result of a very thoughtful, careful process where we tried to be as thorough as possible when it came to, you know, who this was and and any possible I mean, we all have our, our limitations. And, um, Would, in this case, he be somebody who strengthened the ticket? And I think we came up with the right guy.
0: And I think most people agree with that. It was a really well-received and consensus <laughs> Even positive they, choice. Not only like that,
1: he was a be- better debater than I was. Well, right? that, <laughs> it, it, he still has— That's uh, a priceless, that's a priceless it, line, isn't yes, it? Yes, he still
0: he still has one of the best lines ever in a debate. No question. And the look on Dan Quayle's face <laughs> was, was <laughs> worth it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's move to the general election. And I think okay. you foreshadowed a little bit really what became the essence of that. Uh, you are a positive person. You are an honest person. Anyone who's so. been around so. you will, yeah. will, will, will say that. Yeah. And you are a serious person and you take what you do seriously. And, and I think in some respects, assume others or people are serious too. And that m- might have been the fatal flaw. But talk a little bit about what it was like to win the nomination and then come under assault and – Just go about your business. I remember in August, you were doing your state days. You were traveling around Massachusetts. Not too much, but some. State, you knew you were going to win because you were still governor. Talk about what it felt like when you got a sense of what campaigns were becoming. Because you really were the first candidate that got that kind of all-out assault.
1: I'm not sure I think that. Look, I mean, uh, politics is you know a competitive sport here. And uh, I wasn't the first person to be under assault, so called. And you always make, you're going to make some mistakes. I mean, everybody makes them. But I made two big ones, Joe. First, I was a guy who had always been elected because of very intensive precinct based grassroots campaigns. Of course, I'd never run for the presidency. So I spent a lot of time talking to people who I thought knew more than I did about how to win the presidency all of whom kind of poo-pooed the notion of a precinct-based presidential campaign, maybe for city council or something, but not for the presidency. And it took Barack Obama to prove that a precinct-based grassroots organization could win the presidency for it. That was my fault. Nobody else's. And secondly, I made this decision I wasn't going to respond to the Bush attack campaign. If there's a lesson to be learned from 1988, is that you simply can't do that. I don't care how positive you are. If the other guy's going to come at you with this stuff, you've got to be ready for it. And, uh, you know, the Willie Horton thing and furloughs and soft on crime and all that kind of stuff. And without getting into the details, I mean, it would not have been difficult to take on Bush <laughs> on law enforcement, crime, uh, this kind of stuff. The Reagan-Bush administration had the most liberal furlough program in America, and one of their furloughees went out and murdered a young pregnant mother in the Southwest. I never said that. I think the homicide rate in Houston, where Bush was from, was six times the homicide rate in Boston. They had a death penalty. We didn't. I never said that. Well, look, (laughs) seems pretty obvious, right? Seems
0: pretty obvious now, but not
1: then. Well, uh, it should have been obvious. And uh, it's not that I had not been in some pretty tough campaigns at the state level. Against King the second time around, it was the great rematch. But for whatever reason, I thought, well, the country's ready for positive stuff and so on and so forth. And it's uh, it was a mistake and probably had a lot to do with my, not skipped a probably, I think had a lot to do with my defeat.
0: So t- talk a little bit about how you dealt with your closest friends and your family when this was going on. Because it, this, this had to bother Kitty, the kids, you know, the the extended family.
1: Well, I don't know how much they were bothered by it. Remember, they were all involved. On the whole, you're campaigning among friends or at least uh, folks that are likely to be friendly. Nobody's coming up to you and telling you you're a jerk. Um, so you don't hear a lot of that. And there was no question, a lot of enthusiasm, this, that, and the other thing, even when things got a little tough. So I don't know how much as a candidate or even as a family you're aware of what's going on out there. Uh, yeah, polling was being done, and obviously we knew that we were not doing well and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, I'm kind of an inveterate optimist, and, and if you work hard enough, it's, it's going to work out okay, right? But there's just no question that uh, those two things in particular, forget about the tank and that, all that kind of stuff. I mean, those two things in particular, I think, uh, really had a lot to do with, with my defeat. So
0: some of this stuff, though, was deeply personal the Attacks on your mental health, yeah. <laughs> um, which I can stand here and tell you, you're the most sane person I've ever come across. I, I hope so. <laughs> in, a, in a business of crazy people, yeah. <laughs> you're you're you are you're in the yeah. top one percent of the sane, and you know, also Kitty having to deal publicly right. with right. her struggles with alcohol. Did you reach a point somewhere in that campaign that said this isn't worth it? This, you no, know, I,
1: no, I never never came to that point. And, and remember, her struggles with alcohol came after the campaign. I mean, I, I, la- I, kiddingly, as, as I've said to you, said she should have run; she would have wanted to walk. So that, that wasn't it. The Reagan thing about me as an invalid was really kind of weird. And I don't know how you know you've been through this; you've strategized and done it well. What do you do when the president of the United States gets up out of a clear blue sky and refers to you as the invalid? Right. Now, I'd like to think I'm a reasonably sane guy. <laughs> <laughs> and and seemed to do pretty well emotionally, otherwise during what was a very busy, active political career, and uh, a little difficult to kind of attack the incumbent president about this, especially when you don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, where did it come from? Why did he say that? And then two uh, two hours later, he comes back up and apologizes. No. Well,
0: we, we know with hindsight why he said it, because Lee Atwater and the president's men right. and the vice the vice president's people were out quietly spreading stories right. about how you fell apart uh, upon the death of your brother and all this stuff. And they put a pile of kindling out, threw gasoline on it, and the president lit the match. So it was it was designed. I wonder how, looking back on it, and I had this thought cross my mind, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. That during the wonderful services for President Bush, 41, that I, I was still reminded that that wonderful man, a statesman who contributed a lot to this country, ran a fundamentally dishonest campaign. And a dishonest campaign about
1: you and your character. Well, and and, and to some extent a racist campaign. Absolutely. With, with the, the, leadi- yeah. the leading actor in all of this, whether he does it or knew it or not, was, was a, a black uh, inmate who did a furlough under a program, by the way. Designed by my predecessor was a Republican, and a good one. So there we are. But as I said at the time that uh, President Bush passed away, the one thing he did, which it seems to me we should remember about, was that he and Mikhail Gorbachev ended the Cold War. I didn't think he was a great domestic president by any means, and that's one of the reasons he lost for re-election. But why did he do it? I don't know. Was he aware of that? I don't know. But in any event... I don't blame him. Look, there were ways to deal with that. And my advice to any presidential candidate from now on is get ready for the attack campaign and put together a very well-thought-out strategy for not only blunting it, but if possible, turning it back on your opponent. I mean, I think that's just got to be standard operating procedure, Joe.
0: I mean, campaigns have changed so much. I I, I remember that one of the things we talked about, John Sasso, before, and— He left the campaign for a while because he he produced or was the campaign produced a video showing two candidates, Neil Kinnick and Joe Biden, side by side speaking, which now is the most innocuous thing in the world, given what uh, we now even have foreign countries interfering in our elections, much less campaign. Nobody nobody I
1: can recall in my campaign was asking a president of another country to help him in his campaign.
0: I mean, do you look at? Your run for the president as kind of a watershed moment where things went off the rails a little bit. No, as far-
1: I don't think it was a watershed moment. I mean, we we had pretty combative campaigns, uh, and remember, I lived through the McCarthy era. wasn't a candidate for the presidency, but that was that was very very tough and brutal. And remember Vietnam. I mean, families divided, candidates divided. It's not as if we haven't gone through this. Uh, no, I thought it was basically my failure to um, understand that under these circumstances, uh, you have to anticipate that you may be attacked and you better come up with an effective way of dealing with that. And I just didn't.
0: So the other big things and uh, the other big thing in a, a general election are the debates. How did you prepare for those? How did you view your opportunity there? And then we have this famous question from Bernie Shaw that mm, mm-hmm. you take it from there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Look, I think in some ways I overprepared. Remember, it's a long campaign, Joe, I don't have to tell you. And um, while I loved the primary because it was kind of a series of state fights, which I was familiar with, all of a sudden you're the nominee and it's back to the beginning again, where you're being asked the same questions under the same circumstances and so on and so forth. And uh, I don't want this to sound off a bit, but you're speaking almost every day, basically saying the same things. It may sound crazy to say, well, the campaign starts getting boring or however you want to describe it, but maybe monotonous, well, you know, I think yeah. maybe that's the, yeah, yeah monotonous and, and uh, you
0: have, to, and you have to do what everybody around you is saying rather than just well, going out. Not uh, only that, yeah.
1: but I mean, you just, you know, it's, it's, you've been at this now for what, 15 months and now it's the final. And keeping an edge on and, and a sense of enthusiasm and so on and so forth uh, is not easy. In fact, you're dying for the thing to be over so you can get self-elected and go out and do great things, right? So that's an issue. That's an issue. Frankly, I think there are ways to change that. I was very impressed with the fact that when uh, Bill Clinton won the nomination in New York, he and his running mate got on a bus headed, I think, for St. Louis.
0: Yeah, they just went through the Midwest. And
1: know. the response to this bus thing was so strong that he kept they kept it going for, what, three, four, five days afterwards? And from that point on, every week, he and Al Gore were in a bus someplace. I'm sorry we didn't do that Yeah, for two reasons. Not only because I thought it was effective, but you're on the ground, you're not on a plane, you're seeing real people, you're going through real communities. And I love that stuff. And uh, if I had to do it over again... I'd be doing that bus thing the way Clinton and Gore did it, every single week, just to kind of anchor you and give you a chance to, and as I recall, it drove the Secret Service crazy, but they basically announced in advance what their route was. And then if 100 people showed up in a, in a, in a cornfield someplace, they'd stop they, and you
0: absolutely. know to
1: the consternation of their security. But I thought it was terrific. Why didn't we do that? I don't know. But <laughs> believe me, it would have been a, not only effective in a political sense, it would have been a lot more fun.
0: Yeah, I think I got the sense that you were tired of debate prep. When uh, you know, one of the things you used to do to relax was go outside and throw the football around or well, throw a baseball around. Yeah. And we were at the we were at the hotel in Los Angeles, <laughs> and <laughs> you came out and said, "I want to throw the baseball around." And normally it was for five minutes or yeah, six yeah. minutes. We were at this for about forty-five minutes. I and it was like, "I, I, I don't remember this, that." But this guy yeah. doesn't want to go back into <laughs> yeah. debate prep. It's he's yeah, had enough. Yeah.
1: No, I think probably, you know. That was, that was we, we did too much of it to yeah. tell you the truth. And you start kind of rehearsing answers and all this kind of stuff, which tends to take something away from the spontaneity of what you're trying to do. And you do get tired. There's no question about it. Uh, not that I was ever at a point where I didn't, you know, I was too tired. But it's important to stay fresh and it's important to retain your enthusiasm. And uh, And then, you know, when I was asked that question, and by the way, I was the guy that insisted that at least one of the press panel be African-American. I mean, they, they were strictly an all-white operation, you know. And I had a lot of respect for, for him. But look, if you're, if you're opposed to the death penalty, as I am and have been all my life, then it seems to me the time would have come to say to my opponent, hey, you're from Houston, Texas. Your homicide rate is six times what I was in Boston. Don't talk to me about the death penalty. Why don't you just go to work and do something about mm-hmm. violence in Houston? That should have been the answer. Yep. And it wasn't. So
0: we get to the end of the campaign. Right. When did you know this wasn't going to work out for you? How did you deal with that? And how did you deal with your family you your closest mm-hmm. friends?
1: Well, first, I don't think I ever accepted the notion that I could not win. I knew I was behind, no question about it. But we were starting to come back. And there were, I don't know, a dozen states where I lost by three points or less or yeah. something. I mean, this was a tight race in many ways. So, uh, and I was, you probably remember this. I was on the phone doing radio yep, call I do. I remember th- th- from,
0: from, from until about 9 o'clock at from night. From 4 o'clock yeah. at,
1: you know, in the afternoon yeah. until the western states yeah. kind of wrapped up. And uh, we never stopped. Yep. I knew I was behind it. I knew I, there was no room to be. Particularly optimistic, but twelve states within three points or less? I mean, that's a lot of states. So um until the end, I don't think any of us ever accepted that, but it happens and it happens. So what do you do under the circumstances? Well, I was still governor.
0: You had a job to go back to, but how so did you how did you work through the defeat?
1: It was difficult. It was difficult. For one thing, you're very you're tired. For another it was very disappointing. For a third, the country was starting to go into another recession again. So I had to get back to the State House and start working on the Massachusetts miracle, right? So I didn't have much time to sit around feeling sorry for myself. But uh, there's no question. I mean, you, you know, you've know, you been out there. I remember Fritz Mondale, somebody who I know we both admire enormously, saying to me that after he lost in 84, he had terrible problems just getting to sleep.
0: Yep. No, we talked to when we, in our All conversation right. with him. He talked and, about and that. And a
1: pile of books next to his. So every time he'd wake up, and he'd wake up often <laughs> during the night, he'd take the book and read, get tired, fall asleep, back again. And I think it was probably a couple of months before he started yeah. sleeping normally. And uh, there's nobody out there who's, in my opinion, who's as solid and as well grounded as Walter Mondale. So uh, that's going to happen to you. But I had a job to do as, as governor, it was, and it wasn't fun at the time because the national economy was really starting to go down badly.
0: So you've been through this process. What did you learn about yourself by going through the primary process and the general election as Michael Dukakis, the man?
1: Well, one thing I learned was that I had some things to learn about <laughs> running for the presidency. And while, as I say, I think I was a much better public servant the second time around after getting defeated the first time for election as governor, there's nothing quite like a presidential campaign, as we both know. It's the toughest thing you'll ever have to do. It's in many ways the most exciting thing you'll ever have to do. But it's tough. And uh, not because people are coming at you or any of that kind of stuff, Joe. I just think it's a it's long And one of the things for me which was not helpful was that while in my gubernatorial campaigns, where I worked just as hard as I did run for the presidency, I was out there with people, connecting with folks, on the ground, meeting, talking, listening. The presidential campaign, once you get the nomination, as we both know, is not that. First, you've got the Secret Service to deal with good people, made a lot of friends with them. I wouldn't have security when I was governor. We don't have a governor's mansion in Massachusetts, <laughs> live in my own home. I'd walk to walk my kids to school and get on the streetcar and go to the State House. And loved that. Kitty used to say, Why does it take you so long to get out of the supermarket? And I'd say, Well, <laughs> I'm doing the shopping. I've been doing the shopping ever since we were married, but people want to talk to you, right? And the one concession, that's interesting, the one concession is governor that we had to make is that we really couldn't do much public recreating. We loved, for example, skating on the the town's ice ice rink. It was an outdoor rink. Just couldn't do that anymore because my kids finally came to me and said, Dad, look, this. We everyone wants to talk to you. We never have a chance to be with you. So we had to do that side kind of privately. And uh, obviously, when you're running for the presidency, I mean, you just can't have that kind of easy and formal contact with people that I was able to have as governor. And that was... That was not a good thing for me. I mean, I thrived on being connected with folks and chatting and listening and and so forth. You can't do a lot of that.
0: Yeah. There are a lot of great retail politicians, which I think you are, and then some great wholesale politicians. I think Ronald Reagan, uh, my yeah. old boss, I think President Clinton, was one of the guys who
1: could do both. Indeed, he could. So, <laughs> But, you know, he's the guy that said that living in the White House, what, what did he say? It was an interesting phrase that he— used about uh, the White House was the crown jewel of the federal correctional system. That's right. Remember that? Yeah. Wasn't yeah. that a Clinton yeah. Yeah. Remember? Yep. And, and I know I, what he's
0: talking about. Because yeah. he had trouble going and just wandering into a crowd and talking to
1: people. I don't know whether you were around at the time, Joe, but early in his administration, and you know we'd been good pals and had worked together very closely on a lot of stuff, arranged to see him, I think it was in February, on a Saturday in Washington, to talk to him about health care because I had become a big fan of the Hawaiian health care system which <laughs> was the first state that everybody talks about Massachusetts office. So yep. Sorry, it was Hawaii that first had universal health care. And I arrived as he was doing a children's show with Peter Jennings of ABC at the White House for kids. And then I show up. So the buzz is around. First, he's doing this thing. Dukakis just, I mean, Dukakis. So he kind of looks around. He says to me, here, come with me. He grabs me. And we go walk out the front door of the White House and have a conversation on the front lawn. And the Secret Service lost him. (laughs) Where's the the president? Where is he? And people are driving. At that time, they could drive on Pennsylvania Avenue waving and beeping, all this kind of stuff. But you got the sense that once you're in that job, your life in a kind of, and we both know Clinton. I mean, there's nobody (laughs) on this planet (laughs) that is as easy with people, interesting with people, focuses on you when he talks to you no matter how many people are around him that kind of thing is very tough
0: so let me finish by asking do we pick our presidents the right way in this country do these campaigns work do the campaigns test your metal test your leadership skills or are we going about this the wrong
1: way well let me say first that the electoral college should have been abolished 200 years ago I mean, this is a, this is an anachronism. Anybody who knows anything about the history of the Electoral College knows that it was had more to do with the slave states than anything else. And why, by the time we arrived at Jacksonian democracy, we didn't decide to get rid of this thing, totally, I don't know. And now it's really starting, I think, to screw up and distort the system. So the faster we get rid of that, the better. And as you know, uh, Common Cause and a variety of other organizations have a kind of have suggested a way to get rid of it doesn't doesn't require a constitutional amendment and I'm all for it and I think that should go. And I think President Obama in his campaigns, notwithstanding social media and all this kind of stuff, did something which we ought to be thinking about, which is, as I've said earlier, doing a precinct by precinct organizational effort in a way that got him elected. And uh, notwithstanding all this other stuff, I'm still a very strong believer that the most effective way to campaign for any office is with people at the local level systematically making contact with every single voting household. Not once, three times, five times, six times. And that still, I think, is the most effective way to win. So when it comes to the upcoming campaign, I have been doing everything I can to try to persuade people that it's got to be 50 states, 200,000 precincts, precinct captain in every precinct, with six neighborhood captains, and it's door-to-door, person-to-person, house-to-house. And I still think, uh, I don't think I'm getting too old here, I still think that that is by far the most effective way to win, and there's no reason under the sun why the Democratic Party can't recruit 200,000 precinct captains in a country of 320 million people and get them out there doing that. And if we do that, we're going to win it.
0: You know, that advice is being taken by a lot of people. We we talked to uh, Governor Dean a while back as part of this series. And he's, I he's, hope so. he's, he's your champion here. Not,
1: not only that, he's he's a master at it. Because when he was party chairman, he did it. Right. And we all know what happened. Um, it was a hugely successful tour of duty.
0: Governor Tokakis, thanks for sharing. I personally want to let you know how much I enjoyed listening and Sorry. catching up with you and... For everyone who listens on their behalf, thank you for your service.
1: And thanks for doing what you're doing, because this is very important. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and
0: review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.